Wednesday, February 23rd, you're watching Market Call. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Nathan. And in just a few brief minutes, sit your chairs, people. We'll be joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And, of course, Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. We're putting 30 minutes up on the clock sort of a half in college basketball, as it were. And off we go, Dan Nathan. Yeah, we are. Hey, you know, guy, it's also a shortened holiday week. What is shortened holiday weeks, trading weeks over your career? What have they meant? I, for some reason, in my head, I feel like there's like unusually high volatility. You're trying to fit five days of action into four. Is that something yeah, with you? There's, no? a, there's the old adage, you never short a holiday shortened week. I, I don't know. You know I hate those things, those, you know, Buy in May and no, you're, you're thinking to sell Rosh Hashanah, buy Yom Kippur. I think that's what you're nuts. talking about. All those things well, make me crazy. No, I know you can't stand those things. Well, listen, there's a lot going on right now, and I think that you know if you think to a lot of the volatility that we saw in the equity market and a lot of just different risk assets in January, they're really kind of predicated on what the Fed will or will not do as it relates to monetary policy. Then all of a sudden, I know you've been talking about a lot of this geopolitical stuff for a long time. We've seen that kind of exasperated here. So we have you know markets retesting those January lows, and you know what? Could you think of a better guy, one of our best friends, to bring in and talk? about some of the charts here because in volatile times like this it really does make sense to get a sense for the technical so let's bring in the aforementioned carter braxton worth of worth charting what's up carter aforementioned that says it all (laughs) (laughs) well so let's get to it man i mean you had some great work on worth charting on your newsletter yesterday and we really wanted to highlight it yesterday i took a quick stab at the s p 500 but i think you have a much more nuanced approach what are you seeing in the charts in the broad markets here? Because the S&P 500, it ticked down 10% from its all-time highs yesterday. You knew what the headlines were, S&P, correction, yada, yada. But like, give us a sense of what you're expecting here, because it really feels a bit different this time around. Last year was the like one in five in the last 40 that the S&P did not have a 10% peak to drop decline, and we just did it to, uh, this year. That's right. And look, there's a well-observed pattern that's developing and you'll see it in the media. You'll see it in my work and there are a lot of good charters doing good work on it. It is known as something head and shoulders reversal. They're head and shoulders bottoms, they're head and shoulders tops. But what it is is when you're in a strong, steady advance and you have your first intermediate decline that's important. And we had that, of course, in September and you go on and make a new high And then when you falter, you undercut the prior intermediate low and then rally again, but can't get back above the preceding intermediate peak. It's transitioning. It's losing momentum. People who are buying in late are getting trapped and getting worried. And so it doesn't have to actually look like a head and shoulders, but often they do. It's just a reversal formation. And you can see the lines here. Let's sort of play the movie, if you will. Look at the next chart. This is what's called the neckline. And so the shoulders are what they are. The head is what it is. Now, how do you measure if and as you break, how far, whether it's a stock, a currency, a commodity will go? Well, take a look at the next chart. You look at the range. So see here, the top and bottom line in the next chart, you'll see both the neckline and 
Now, the width of that range, we'll measure it. So here, next chart is 540 points. The peak is 4820. The neckline's 4275. That's 545 points. Now, of course, it's not going to be perfect. And it's not some magic trick you can guarantee that it will then therefore drop 545 points. But as you'll see here on the next slide, the arrow, were we to have a perfect measured move and drop exactly 545 points, which is the width of the range from the head to the neckline. And then you'll see in the final chart, this is what a measured move is. And we would be down at 3720, 3730. And that is a considerable drawdown. How considerable? Look at the long-term chart of the market. This is the channel that the S&P has been in since the 09 low. And that 3730 would put us to and below the middle of the channel. It's interesting, Carter. You know, I mean, you're 3730. We've actually been banding about 3750 as an ultimate level. So Close enough for government work, as they say. Yep. But if we can toggle back, I just like saying that. But if we can sort of go back to one of the original charts you put up, I want to bring it up because what's interesting to me, this change in direction that you're talking about in the S&P, yes. it's effectively took place when the Fed changed their direction in November, which, you know, coincident or not, that's just the fact. So, you know, if you don't think the Fed matters on the way up, well, they do. And if you don't think they matter on the way potentially down, they certainly do. And I think you've just outlined this extraordinarily well. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's not in an uptrend now. And while it doesn't have to go all the way down to those 37, 30 levels or lower, higher, it's what a transition is, right? And we know that bottoms, bearish to bullish reversals, take time and price, and tops take time and price. And so, the real question is, and really this is dependent on things that would either be recession-based or a real problem in Ukraine and Russia, would we go to the bottom of the channel? And the bottom of the channel, you're getting to be down 30 plus percent. You know, Carter, this is kind of interesting, this head and shoulders top after a long bull run. It kind of reminds me of what happened in 2015 and 16 when the Fed, A, started to taper bond purchases. They signaled they were going to do that, and then they were going to come off ZERP. And we had this period, if you recall, in the summer of 15 and into the early 16, where there were some growth scares, the Fed was tightening. And, you know, the S&P 500 made its first series of lower lows in a very long time. And I think that's what this kind of formation is kind of indicating here a little bit, but that was a big fake out at the time, you know, and the Fed kind of got a bit more dovish. And I think what's different this time is really the fear of inflation and all this geopolitical stuff. They don't ease those concerns. So the Fed kind of does have to stay their course to Guy's point about when the dynamics change. Talk to us a little bit about the NASDAQ 100. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the concentration of those top six or so names that make up about 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. This chart looks much heavier than the S&P 500. At its lows in January, is down about 17 18% or so. The S&P at its lows was only down 10%. Give us a sense of what you think is going on here. And might you see a period of underperformance in the NASDAQ relative to the S&P, despite that those top six names make up about 20 25% of the S&P 500, but far greater than the NASDAQ 100? That's right. So that's known as autocorrelation, right? To look at the NASDAQ 100's relative performance to the S&P when so many of the constituents driving the NASDAQ also drive the S&P, 
there are ways of netting that out with equal weighting and so forth. But the main circumstance here that is different, and it's a tell, right, is that it's a double top. So the S&P went on to make new highs in early January above its November high, but the QQQ couldn't, and nor could the Russell 3000. So that's interesting. The S&P 500 and the way it's cap weighted, but the broadest index of all, the Russell 3000, that's the S&P 500 plus another 2500, has the double top formation, and so does the top 100. And so the issue is the high in January really wasn't confirmed by a new high in the QQQ. So you have all sorts of issues here. And then, of course, this index, and remember, the NASDAQ 100 on a total return basis at the end of last year completed 13 years of positive returns. No index has ever done that in its history, not the Dow going back 1900, the S&P. And so this is where all the growth is. This is where all the dynamic innovation is. And this index is the one that's closest to making a new intermediate low. And so we, there might be a table here. If we look at Yeah, this, that's what I was going to just say, Carter. You're bringing something new here. This one I haven't seen. It. I love this. Can you speak to this? Because I think this really sums up everything really well. That's right. So we know that the market plunged and it made a low. It's actually, we're on the one month anniversary of that. That's Jan 24th. And so this is simply sorted, this table, in order of how far above, not much, indices are, key indices, from their respective January low prints. And you can see that right there on the bottom is the NASDAQ 100, meaning it's precariously close to undercutting that low. And the NASDAQ futures undercut the low, albeit briefly, on Sunday, Monday, or I guess Monday, Tuesday, because we had the holiday, and are back above it. But this is where you look for clues, because by making a new low, you've then confirmed a new sequence. Carter, I want to ask you a quick question. What do you see? What's the top one on that list? It appears to me it's something called the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. Is that correct? That's correct. Symbol there would be, I think, socks. Is that correct? Yes. Wasn't it pre-Olympics that you said literally on the day that it troughed that that was your buying opportunity? And I mentioned that because you look at this table, and that's obviously been the leading performer since that January low. And I bring that up because your work does, it's incredibly important work. And that's I, somewhat uh, gratuitous, I know, but it's important for the folks playing our home game. Well, first of all, thank you for that. You know, it's easy to remember the good ones, and you could certainly call me out for the bad ones. We all have them. But you know what? I'm proud of that. That's right. It was uh, I stuck my neck out, and that's kind of neat to be on top of that table, top of the league table there. Semis have shown their worth. Yeah, well, to the penny, and you show your worth to us every time you join us on Market Call. Thank you for that, Carter. Another name I think this is really important, and you were you kind of brought up this concept over the last, let's call it six weeks or so, is that you know they shoot the generals last, right? We've seen for months and months and months, we've seen a lot of high valuation names, SPACs, you know, the recent tech IPOs, unprofitable companies with decelerating growth, crypto. They've all been just falling by the wayside. I mean, they've literally there's been hundreds of stocks and cryptos that have just crashed here. You've been bringing up the relative strength in some of the names like Apple and Alphabet of late. And this is one that's kind of interesting. If, if you're trying to find a bottom for the market, when that might happen, what 
there be in the S&P or the QQQ, it really has to come with either some of these bigger names leading the way higher, right? Or having some sort of capitulation. You know, Apple is down about 10% from its highs. It's up a bit from those lows last month. Give me a sense, because I have some thoughts on Apple. I'll introduce a trade idea using options here a little bit, but I wanted to get your sense of that relative strength that we've seen of late. Right. So this is, well, it's a comparative line. This chart here, two comparative lines, not showing relative where you need to have it as a ratio. And I've done that for a reason because I want to show how, how they've diverged really since November. And that's important. It's also important that were they to start to converge again with Apple sort of getting worse relative to the QQQ, that alone would cause the NASDAQ 100 to undercut its January 24th low, which we just looked at. It's hovering precariously just ever so slightly above it. And so in a way, this is the ultimate bellwether. It is perhaps the most widely owned stock. It obviously, it's the largest stock. And the question really is, will Apple break further? I know we've got some charts coming up. But for now, day to day, I think Apple has to be respected. Its relative strength has to be sort of acknowledged. And at the very same time, obviously, if and as there's weakness, it's important to Apple, of course, or any stock that has strength or weakness, but it's really what it will say about the market. Let's take yeah. a look at that Apple. I'm sorry, Dan, but we have that Apple chart. I'd love this the way you draw these lines. As you like to say, the lines draw themselves. And I look at this quickly and I say, well, well, I think that's the 200-day in this case. Right in the crosshairs, what is your thoughts here in Apple? Well, now, Dan, those are Dan's lines. We drove them together, I guess, did we? Or I can't remember. Uh, no, I mean, listen, you know, yeah. listen, I think the main crux here, guy, is that, you know, Carter and I are looking at this in two different ways, okay? And so I'm going to get into a trade idea here. And that relative outperformance is very notable from November. We made the case on many occasions that the NASDAQ topped out in November. The S&P made new highs in the first week of January. And, you know, look at what's happened here. So now we have this little flag forming here, that 200-day that you mentioned. I know Carter likes the 150-day. It's probably a little bit um, higher there is down there, you know, about 150. Guy, you thought that you'd see support on the downdraft back in January to that breakout level from the fall that got you to about 155 or so. Here's the thing, and this is really about my take at this point, is that I really think that we're not done going down. If you're looking at those broad indices that Carter just charted out for us, there's no way that Apple can't come back. If the market's breaking down, Apple is going to be, I think, is going to play a little bit of a catch up. And you see that range between 150 and 140, that seems like it's right in the cards. That was that high from earlier last year, 2021. And, and you know, there was a significant sell-off from that high too. So, you know, when I think about a, a stock like Apple, and if it is going to be that last battle fought, then I think about, all right, well, if I'm a trader, I might want to think about what's a cheap way I can express a move to the downside, maybe targeting, you know, 140 or a little bit lower and, you know, kind of really get that thing overdone down about 20% from its highs. Because that might be the capitulation the market's waiting for. So Carter and I did a show on CNBC for years. It was called Options Action. Guy, you would come on every once in a while. I did it for 10 years. Carter's still doing it, but this is what we did. Carter would lay out a technical take, and then I'd give a fundamental view, or Mike Coe would do that. I want to do that right here. So today, if you're looking to either hedge a portion of your Apple long position or just make an outright bearish bet, I'd look to the options market. I'd look to April expiration. I think the sell-off that we're in right now is going to take a little while. And if they're going to come for Apple last, then this is the one that you want to pick on a little bit. So to me, the trade's kind of simple. It's a put spread. I want to buy the Apple 160, 130 put spread, paying about $5 for that, buying one of the April 160 puts for about $6, selling one of the April 130 puts at about a buck 
You have profits up to $25 between 155 and 130 on the downside with a max gain of 25 below 155. I have losses up to five between 155 and 160 with a max loss of five above 160. And here's the deal. This trade literally risks 3% of the stock price. The stock is moving around two to 3% easily a day right now, intraday here. I have a break even down 5%. I have a max potential gain of five times the premium I have at risk or about 15% of the stock price of Apple's down about 20% in a little less than two months here. So I like this risk reward of this trade idea. If you're looking as a trader to kind of pick a spot on the chart where it could go to the downside, if you think the market's going to get ugly here. And I think it's really important. Look at this next chart here. And Guy, you mentioned this all the time. This stock is not impervious to sell-offs. Look at the one in the early 2020. It sold off in line with the market about 35% from its highs. The next sell-off later that year in September to its lows, about 25%. Then we had a 20% peak to drop decline, and there was a 15 and two like tens or so. So I don't think this thing's done. I don't think the market can bottom before this thing gets really ugly. Just curious to get a sense for those sell-offs that appear to be getting smaller, but at some point, I think something's got to give here, guy. Well, I agree with that. And by the way, you're giving yourself time. I mean, you probably got close to what, a month and a half or so, if not a tad longer for this to work. And I got to tell you something, if China-Taiwan situation plays out the way I think it will, I think this trade will manifest itself as a winner very quickly. So I think you're spot on with this. And as you say all the time, the risk reward for this trade sets up extraordinarily well. And everybody says you got to own Apple. I totally get it. You know, when Apple seemingly makes a new all-time high every week or so, that's obvious. The realization is, as you've pointed out a number of times yourself, you see significant peak to trough declines over the last couple of years. So Carter, let me ask you a, a quick question here because I thought that run up in the summer of 2020, remember it was the mega cap stocks, they were just literally went parabolic. And if you look at that chart right there, you see the move since that earnings event in July and where it topped out and how viciously it sold off. And then last year, Q1 of 2021, the stock had a 20% peak to trough decline, basically on no news, just really on interest rates going higher. When you look at a chart like this and you look at those declines, what does it say to you right now? If you're bearish on the S&P and the QQQ, don't you have to be bearish on Apple here? Well, because they are by virtue of the sort of oral correlation. Again, there's a well-defined trend line you can see with your eye if we were drawing lines here, that you can connect that sort of COVID low and run it up along the intermediate lows over the past two years. And so we're, we're at a critical juncture. The one thing to point out about Apple and that spike high in September of 2020, its relative performance to the market at that point, it peaked and it didn't make any progress for 18 months. So even as Apple was going higher, it made no gains relative to S&P for about 16 months. And in that sense, it's not as extended on a relative basis as it looks sort of on an absolute looking at this chart. Yeah. So you call it shooting the generals last, you know, I would call it the Alamo. It's kind of like the last stand it's Apple. And then we got to look at Tesla because this one, you know, got to about a $1.2 trillion market cap at its recent highs. It's down about 35%. From then, it's contending with that nice round number of 800. And we could have done a shorter term chart. And you can see that little consolidation in late September, early October, around 800, right? And why that might be important. But Carter, when you look at that uptrend from the March 2020 lows, and you just do the, I learned it all from you, man. I mean, like, let's be frank. And then you look, whether it's the 200 or the 150, it is through it. Where is the support in this chart? Right. So you can see where it dawdled, right? Which is, it went back to the, 
prior spike high and held and backed and filled. But now it is just as you've said it, it's not holding. And so support is really, there is no support day to day, hour to hour. There is no key level. And the presumption is that this will lead the market on the way down, just as in many ways, and specifically consumer discretion, and in many ways, other sort of popular names. I look at this, Dan, and I say, you know, that 570 level, which was in the spring where we sort of took off from after that, you know, sell-off we saw from late January into the spring, that's your level. And I think we sort of make a beeline now at this point. That 900 level, which was the prior all-time high, again, back in February, we're now broached significantly through it. It feels broken to me. And add on top of it, you know, it feels like the market's got it in for the ARC ETF. And this is sort of, you mentioned generals, this is sort of the last general on that one as well. Yeah, you know, it's pretty remarkable when you think about that. I, I can't remember what the stat was in that ETF. And we know it was Roku and Coinbase and Robinhood and a bunch of other crap. And, and really, it is crap. And this is the largest holding. I think it was probably as, as maybe 10% at its height. And now it's maybe high single digits. But if they lose this one in a meaningful way, if there really is no support in this one, and this finds its way back towards 500, I mean, they're out of business. That thing is going to be dead as a doornail. Guy, let's talk about, you know, you and I spent some time yesterday talking about that move in Home Depot was down 11% yesterday or at its lows. It closed maybe down 9.5% or so. We've seen a lot of volatility in these retailers. You know, Macy's was up after its report yesterday. I think it was up like high single digits percentage, closed down 5%. It's down another 4 or 5% today. TJ Maxx, disappointing quarter. They're talking about all the things that, you know, we we expected them to maybe about, you know, supply and supply chains and and, and inflation, that sort of thing. What's your take about what's going on in retail? Because you and I have been flagging this is that some of the consumer data has been deteriorating over the last few months. And you would say that it really did kind of line up again with the Fed ending QE and interest rates going higher. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. A lot of that as well. I mean, each retailer's own specific animal, but a lot of it is this pull forward effect that you've been talking about for a while. So let's take a look at the charts. Home Depot is a great example of a stock that appears to be broken. You know, I'm not going to call those double tops, but We made that all-time high, sold off, traded close, and then now we're in this precipitous drop. The support lines draw themselves, and in this case, it comes in at 300. And the point I made last night on Fast Money, maybe awkwardly, was nobody cared about valuation in Home Depot on the way up. They started caring about it, theoretically, late in the fall, early in the winter, when the Fed changed its course. And then you saw how quickly they started to flee from this. You can start to make compelling arguments for a name like Home Depot on valuation, The problem is, you know, how much of this pull forward effects in play and how low can it go? I mean, you see these stocks overshoot all the time. I think 300 is absolutely in the crosshairs. And you mentioned Macy's. The initial knee jerk in Macy's was really good yesterday, without question. We'll take a look at that. The spike higher in the morning and then it gave it all back. I thought the $2 billion buyback from Macy's was encouraging, but clearly the market is not nearly as encouraged as I am. I mean, when you look at Home Depot and Macy's, two very different companies, but in terms of stocks, Telling a similar story, Dan. Yeah, no doubt about it. Hey, Carter, let's go back to that Home Depot for a second because, again, like I said, I learned all my line drawing from you here, man. How is it that that uptrend is so precise from the March lows? And now Guy just mentioned that 300 level. You see the breakout level from last spring, right? You see where it checked back to. You know I've been listening to you for 15 years yep, now, buddy. Check back. On you CNBC. got all the right work. That's right. And so – like, are you going to start to get a little bulled up on this one if it could settle in in that kind of 300 level, that support level? So 
starting with the very first thing is, and you said remarkable or, or something, it is something to marvel at, how precise the trend line is and exactly where it dropped and gapped. So the idea is that charts often set up before fundamentals. It's fundamentals that resolve the charts, but the setups can warn us or flag us for good opportunities, long or short. Second, that consolidation for almost a month before the drop and gap is the right shoulder of a head and shoulders. It's also a double top, just as Guy referred to. And a measured move, which we just looked at, would take us exactly to the trend lines that horizontal lines that you've drawn. And so one could maybe sell a credit spread here if you want to talk about options, a put spread and kind of take in some premium where things are very bearish now or wait and just get long at an increment lower. But that line is a good line to start to put money to work. We took a look at Macy's and that chart doesn't tell a whole hell of a lot. As I mentioned, you know, we're right here at the 200-day moving average. I guess it was sort of the, you got to put up or shut up type of situation here. I will tell you, that these support levels are pretty critical. I mean, the fundamental story in Macy's is, is it a turnaround story? And they're going to continue to work as both online and storefront stores, or are they going to sort of split it up the way Jana partners want them to? We'll see. The more interesting chart to me, Carter, is TJX, because this was everyone's darling, but quite frankly, traded sideways for a long time. Yeah, a series of higher highs. I get it. That seems to be broken as well. It's not only about the idiosyncratic, this stock, obviously there's something specific to it or the raw stores or Home Depot, but in its totality, what's going on in consumer is a big problem, right? We know that the sector has 60 stocks, but because of the market cap nature of the S&P 500 sectors, Tesla and Amazon are 40%. But the equal weight sector, and you can get ETFs for this, is literally making new 52-week lows to the equal weight S&P. And it's one name after another, hovering at lows from urban to gap. It's not good. Yeah, Carter, when you look at this one in particular, though, that TJX, we're kind of getting to that point where it it gapped to Mm -hmm. in 2020 here. But is that gap, if we get through here and we make a new, that gap is going to get filled here. And it's one of those things where, I mean, we've tried to be constructive on some of these retailers. And I think that, you know, some of the fundamental issues that you mentioned about supply or that we've been talking about is just supply to some of these stores. I mean, a lot of these stores are saying we could sell stuff. We just don't have it to put on the shelf shelves, that sort of thing. And no one knows. We just don't have great visibility. And that's why I think it's important when Guy brings up, you know, the situation with China and Taiwan. I mean, we already had a little bit of a preview during the trade war, right? And some of the issues that we would have with supply, we know we're already backed up. I know this doesn't matter for TJX, but with chips and the like, and that's really affecting a lot of the industrials. But when you see a broken chart and you don't have good fundamental visibility, it's kind of like you say, you just stay away a little bit, right? Stay away a little bit. Certainly, look, 98% of all the capital is long only. So the question is, independent of one's trying to catch a, a further decline as a short seller or to, the first and foremost thing is, is this a moment to postpone all new buying, right? The general thrust is people are always buying, adding, getting new capital, whether it's retirement funds or investment proceeds into the market. There's no rush to be putting money into the market in a stock that's dropping and gapping like that or stocks in general at a moment like this. Well, we promised you we put 30 minutes on the clock, CBW and Dan. That's exactly what we did. We're at 1.30 Eastern time. So I want to thank you. That's going to do it for today's market call. I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Hopefully you enjoyed what you just saw over the last 30 minutes. 
If so, be sure to tune in tomorrow at 1 p.m. We'll be joined by EY from SoFi. We'll see you then.